ever told you guys about my brief political career? You didn't know. You didn't know. I want to tell you the story, okay? Um, it wasn't a big, like, a big area. It wasn't a big, like, precinct, but a big race. A few people probably even heard about it. Uh, it was 1994. Uh, it was at uh, Toys Middle School in Wilson, North Carolina. Yeah. Uh, and so, like, I don't know what possessed me to get into politics that year, but uh, one morning the announcements were being made over the intercom, and they were like, it's time for student government elections. And so our homeroom teacher was like, who wants to be, you know, in, in politics? And I was like, I want to be the school president. I raised my hand. I want to be the student body president. So I raised my hand, and uh, man, I got with my buddy Chip on the school bus later that day, and we worked out our whole campaign. Like, we had it figured out, dude. It was, it was killer. You, you, you're going to love our campaign slogan. The campaign slogan, I mean, it needs to be on t-shirts to this day. It was, a vote for Chris, just can't miss. Right? That's good. Yes. Here's the thing. I wish we would have thought that in 1994. I had no campaign slogan. There was, there was no campaign. We barely had posters. I think me and Chip made two posters because poster board apparently is too expensive. So we made two. Uh, it said like Chris Woolard, student body president. It was red, white, and blue. So that's patriotic. That's not nothing. Okay, so I tried. Uh, and then like I began to work on my like platform. Like what do I stand for? And I quickly realized I got nothing. Uh, I don't know what they need here. I don't really want to do anything. I just kind of thought it would be cool to have my name on the ballot. Uh, but, like, the teachers who were, like, overseeing the process were like, all right, so you need to get together, you need to plan stuff. So, like, I come up with some ideas. I remember sitting with some kids in the cafeteria. No joke. It's like, the, it's like from a TV show. Like, I'm like, I'm like, here's the thing, guys. If I'm elected president, I will get slushy machines in the cafeteria. And the teacher came over. She's like, Chris, you, you can't do that. Like, that's not your job. You, the, the, the student body president doesn't get slushies in the cafeteria at the school. I'm sorry. And I was like, oh, okay, then in that case, I got nothing. I have no idea why you should vote for me. And then I found out something else about this campaign, that there would be a speech. I didn't know there would be a speech, and you might not have guessed this, because I like literally do speeches all the time. It's like the main thing I do is do speeches. I did not. I was terrified. I was like, oh, my goodness, a speech. Like, what do you mean? They're like, yeah, it's in front of the whole student body. Like, the whole student body? Like, where? In the auditorium. Everybody? Like, not just Chip and me? Like, is there going to be somebody else in there? She's like, yeah, they're going to, you know, you're going to talk about why they should vote for you. So like, all right, okay, I got this, I got this. So I remember getting like little index cards and you remember the, you know, you're like write down your notes. I'm like, I'm, I wrote some stuff down, but like over and over, I was like, I got nothing. I don't know why I'm running for president. I don't know why you should vote for me. So the day of the speech comes and I remember sitting on the front row in our auditorium and the girl that was running also, there was a couple people running, the girl that was ahead of me was speaking and she was crushing it. Dude, she had some good ideas. I'm going to tell you, like, she was, she was like, you know, we're going to have, like, school spirit's going to be, we're going to do some stuff for school spirit. I was like, that's a good idea. I should have thought of that. Like, that'd be a good idea. And then she was like, we're going to have, like, some dance, like a dance. I'm going to work on a student dance. I'm like, that's a great idea. Let's do some stuff. Let's compete with like, some, some other schools in town. We'll do some competition. I'm like, man, this girl's going places. Like, I think I might vote for her. Like, that's some, yeah. And then, like, she was done. And then the, the principal gets up and she calls my name. And I remember being like, Oh, no, I have nothing to say. So, I mean, I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. I had nothing to say. I get up there with these index cards that have nothing on them, and I get to the little podium, and I, I, I must have introduced myself. Maybe she did that, took, care, took those words out of my mouth, so now what am I going to say? And I remember just kind of being like, it was like, it felt like there was a million people in there. It was probably not. I'm sure that there weren't, because I've seen the auditorium. It's not very big. I remember it felt like the walls were like pushing in on me, and my heart rate was like, oh, and now I remember just going like, um, I'm high, I'm going to run for president, and I, um, um, and I don't know how many times I said I, um, 
it was a lot. And then I said, I, um, I can't do this. And then I just sat down. I just went sat on the front door like, oh. Yeah, no, it's a hilarious story. You can laugh. It's okay. Like, I laugh now, but in the moment, I just remember feeling like, I am mortified. This is the worst thing that could ever possibly happen to a human being. And there was this awkward moment where the whole school was like, what just, remember the girl that went before me? She crushed it. So it was like, did they even practice? Like, does this guy know he was supposed to have a speech? Like, I'm sitting there, I remember my teacher, the principal came and sat down next to me. She was like, Chris, you can do this. The toy's not hawks. We get up and we fight. We got spirit. Get back up there and finish. She made me get back up there. I don't know what happened. I don't have any memory of what happened, but I do know that I got off the seat and went back up on the stage like, yeah, like still got nothing. Uh, vote, vote for Chris. You should vote for that girl. That's probably your best bet. Vote for her. Now, um, it's funny today, but I remember at that time, it stuck with me for weeks. And I just was so embarrassed. And I remember like other students being like, um, I, um, oh. I'm like, shut up. You should try it. She's like, I did. I'm the class president. Um, we didn't have slushy machines in the cafeteria, I regret to inform you, and I did not win. <laughs> so uh, here's the thing. Um, maybe you've never made a fool of yourself in front of the whole school. Maybe you have, actually. Maybe you have. Maybe you haven't. But my guess is that you've had some moments that were pretty embarrassing, and maybe some moments that you were very ashamed and uh, so we've all got things that we're not proud of. And, and the reality is that some of them are public like that. But the majority of the things that we're not proud of, the things that we carry shame about, aren't they private? Like fortunately our worst mistakes for most of us happen like behind closed doors and in dark rooms. And at least not in front of the whole student body. And there's only a few people who know. But the reality is that that feeling of like shame and worthlessness and stupidity, they just sit on us sometimes. And maybe today you're actually carrying some of that with you, or maybe that, now that you mention it, Chris, I appreciate it. You're right. I do have some shame that I carry around. I want to spend some time talking about that today, because I think that it's one of those personal things that God can come into our life and change and help and heal and transform. And so we're in this teaching series called From Paper to Person, Person. and the whole idea of this teaching series is that the words and the stories of Jesus, it's very easy for us to relegate them to just stories in a book. You know, you open your Bible and there's words on a page. But the things that happened were real-life people that had real-life change, and that transformation continues today. Jesus is alive and well. Last week was Easter Sunday, and the whole idea was about resurrection. Jesus is alive, and he brings us life. And so today what I want to do is I want to say, what does Jesus do in our shame? And let's take that story from paper, put it into person, and I hope that you can walk away not with just the idea of how to feel better about yourself, though that's really good. It's not the goal. But ultimately, how do we get to the source of that shame and really hammer it out and take care of it? So we're going to be in the Bible today. As always, we love to look to the Bible for God's most important truths. We're going to be in the book of John. So grab your Bibles, please. John chapter 4. If you need a Bible, we got some by the uh, door over there on a shelf. It'll be on the screen behind me as well. John chapter 4, starting at verse 4. And we're going to meet this lady who I think understands shame more than anything. She gets it. Now, if you've been in church long or you grew up in church you're going to know this story. It's a familiar story. If you've never heard it before, awesome. This is a really good Jesus story. I'm really excited that you can uh, hear it. But I want to, as always, for stories that tend to be kind of well-known, I want to encourage you to, like, take off the blinders of whatever perceptions you might have already had about this story and hear it for the first time today anew and see what it means to you. So um, 
John chapter 4, let's jump in. John chapter 4 and verse 4, and it really just jumps right in. It says, now he, talking about Jesus here, now Jesus had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. Now, that's a pretty straightforward opener, and there's actually a lot of history there, Samaritans and Jews and a lot of stuff going on there, but there's a detail that I don't want you to miss, and that's going to really get us into our, our, our gear this morning. It says that there was a woman, there was a well there, and there was a woman that came to get some water, and it was about noon. Oh, the woman hasn't come yet. There's a woman coming, but Jesus is at the well at about noon, and in just a minute, someone's going to walk up on him, and she's going to be there to get some water. And it's very significant that it's happened at noon. Why? Well, no one went to the well at noon. That's not when you go to the well. Uh, it's not practical to go at noon. By noontime, like you're back, you should be back at home. You should be doing the day. So like you needed your water first thing in the morning to get you through the day. And so I'm, I wasn't there. I don't have pictures of it. But from what I understand, reading through like scholars and commentaries, is that the idea is that in this region, they most likely would have sent probably women and children to the well in the evening. The previous day, it's practical, it's cooler, it's not as hot, you can have all your water for the next day, do your dishes, wash your clothes, uh, wash your people, have water to drink. And so we have this person that's about to walk up, and she is coming in the middle of the day. And that's going to be a trigger for something. We're going to know that something's going on in her life. Okay, so let's just figure out what happens, verse 7. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? The Samaritan woman said to him, uh, you're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How could you ask me for a drink? For Jews did not associate with Samaritans. We'll talk about that more in just a second. Jesus answered her, well, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, well, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never be thirsty again. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. It doesn't say this, but I think the lady bent over in half and just started laughing out loud because what? You got like magic water? What are you talking about? You guys, okay, okay. She says, sir, uh, okay, give me some of this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep on coming to this well every day. How many gallons of water do you think this woman has carried in her life? And this guy's like, yeah, well, I got this special water. You don't need it anymore. He told her, okay, all right. Tell you what, go call your husbands and come back. Go call your husband and come back. Um, I have no husband, she said. And Jesus replied to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. There it is. So you got this lady that walks up to a well, and lo and behold, there's Jesus. And there's a very interesting detail that goes on here is that Jesus is by himself. Did you notice what the rest of his like, posse was doing? They went into town to get lunch, which is a pretty interesting detail. So he's there by himself. This woman walks up, and he asks her a question. Will you get me some water? Wait. That, that accent, you're not from around here. 
Now, uh, linguists think that uh, the people that lived in like the northern region where the Jews lived, Galilee, that they, they had this strong accent that was different from even other uh, speakers of, at the time. And that, so as a southerner, you might get that if you are a southerner. Most of you probably aren't southerners because this is Wilmington. But like if you've ever heard a southerner talk, you're like, yeah, you're from here and you're not, right? So she immediately, I'm sure, saw him and heard him and thought, something's not right here. He asked her for water. And she's like, why are you even talking to me? The Samaritans and the Jews had a history. I won't even get all into it, but it's, it's pretty nasty over the years. They're pretty racist towards each other. There's political history. There's religious history. It all piles on to the fact that basically Samaritans and Jews just didn't even talk to each other. This is also the first century. This is a kind of a, a very conservative uh, area, and men and women didn't talk in public. Even like a lot of times you wouldn't speak to your wife in public. It was just a cultural, cultural thing. And so this is a very abnormal thing for Jesus to speak to her. And what does he ask her for? Water. Now, I want to go back to the thing about it being noon. Because this is a big surprise to her. People don't come to the well at noon. And then Jesus highlights maybe why. In this very conservative culture, you can probably imagine, someone who has been married multiple times probably doesn't have a great reputation. That's the assumption we've made about her for thousands of years, and I think Jesus plays on that and shows us that that's probably something true. He says, okay, listen, I get it. You don't want to talk to me. I'm a man. Maybe that's why I said, go get your husband. I'll tell him all about this living water. And she's like, I, I, I don't have a husband. That was the very thing she actually was hoping wouldn't come up. Here's my, here's my theory. My theory is that the reason she was drawing water at noon was because she didn't want to be with people. You hear her story. She's had several husbands. And I'm sure that gathering with the ladies at the local watering hole was not her favorite activity. This was a culture where you were kind of like talked down about if you had any type of past that other people didn't like fully embrace and agree with. She didn't want to sit with the other ladies and the children to get the water. In fact, you know, I'm going to go when nobody goes to the well. She walks up like, who's this guy at the well? Like, didn't his wife go get some water earlier today? What are you doing here, right? She has isolated herself. She has pulled herself away, and she was hoping not to see anybody. And then Jesus starts asking her for water. Okay, fine, I'll get you some water, but uh, you didn't even bring anything to draw water with. You want me to get the water with the stuff I brought? Come on. You didn't even bring anything. And then Jesus changes the subject on her and brings up the very thing she doesn't want to talk about. Her love life. Yeah, you're right, you don't have a husband. In fact, you've had five husbands, and the guy you're living with now is not your husband. I don't want to put too much, like, I, I can't read this lady's mind, okay? But I've, I've, I've read through this story a lot of times. I've talked through it several times. And I feel like a lot of us can relate to what she's going through. Because he's, like, touching on a really sore spot. And so I want to talk about shame for just a minute. There's a psychologist named uh, Gershon Kaufman, and he very famously, this is like something people quote all the time about shame. He said this, shame is a wound felt from the inside, dividing us both from ourselves and from one another. We see a symptom of this in the fact that she's showing up all by herself at the well. Shame pulls us away. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to be with people. Shame divides us from other people. It also divides us from ourselves. Here's a reality about shame. Often when we are ashamed of something, we don't want to talk about it. We actually will tend to tell ourselves lies to convince ourselves that maybe the thing that we're so ashamed of is not true. 
So shame is a burden that we carry, and it impacts us internally, it impacts our relationships, and, and there's like a cousin to shame that I want to clarify. Uh, a cousin to shame is, is uh, something we call guilt. Guilt and shame. I think if we were just trying to talk about guilt and shame, we could many times like maybe use those words interchangeably because that's kind of how our language does. But there's actually a very fine nuance between the two that I want to highlight. See, guilt, guilt is a doing word. Guilt says, I did something wrong. It's a legal term. Guilty. Gavel hits the table, right? I was speeding. There was a speed limit posted. I went too fast. I deserve a speeding ticket. I was guilty, right? That's guilt. That's a doing word. Shame, though, shame is a being word. Shame doesn't just say I did something wrong and, and I'm guilty. Shame says there's something wrong with me. I'm broken from the inside. I'm a failure. And so though we use those words a little bit interchangeably, I want to really highlight that guilt is a reality that happens when we go against stuff God wants us to do. It, it, I, I, this woman carried with her the guilt of whatever relationship she was in uh, she makes it kind of clear and the fact that he mentioned it this way the fact that she's with a man that's not her husband that indicates that she's being at the very least immoral with this man I mean God designed sex for marriage and that's it that's really the it's a really short conversation our culture tries to elaborate on it and like well we add all the other things to it sex is for like when you love someone or when you care someone or when you're ready no that's not at all what God said it's primarily it starts when someone is is, is, is married and committed, and then beyond that, yes, you also need to have love and marriage and all those other things. It's all kind of a package deal. We don't parse them out. We don't separate them, but in our culture we do, but that's not how God does it. And so she was carrying that with her. That's probably one reason why she was all by herself. And Jesus goes to poke at that. And also there's a past with that. Maybe she had some guilt going on, but on the surface she's like, I'm just going to try to live my life. Let's be honest. Isn't that just the easiest sometimes? I'm just trying to live my life. Okay, life is hard enough as it is. Um, maybe shame that you've had in your life comes from mistakes that you've made. Okay, like if you've made a mistake, it's your fault. Maybe shame in your life becomes kind of this abstract thing, like you're comparing yourself to other people. Maybe you measure your life against other people's success. You measure your life against your peers. You measure your life against the people you grew up with. You measure your life against the people you went to college with or whatever, and you're like, if I measure myself against other people, gosh, I'm a failure. And so you have shame about that. It's kind of intangible, but you just don't feel good about it. Or maybe your shame um, comes from, like, you haven't had the same opportunities as other people, and so maybe you feel like poverty can lead to this. Or maybe not feeling as smart as other people. Or you didn't have the same opportunities, and so it's not like sin at the, surf, at the, at the root of it, but it's something else, and it's just something in there that just beats you up. And it's not even a doing thing. It's a being thing. And you feel beat up, and you feel forgotten, and you feel worthless. So if you carry any of that for any reason, or have in the past, or think that you might in the future, that gets, my guess is that you might, maybe you can relate a little bit with this woman. You're not proud of something, so you try to hide it, or avoid the truth. Shame is a natural response, okay? Like if you do something bad, there's kind of this natural moment where you should be ashamed. Like, I shouldn't do that. <laughs> I shouldn't have done that. I feel bad about it. It's, it's kind of a natural response. On a healthy level, it's a natural response. I think about Adam and Eve, one of the first, first stories in the Bible. I mean, they sin against God, and what do they do? I mean, they naturally, they, they, they cover themselves up and they go hide from God. They're trying to get out of the way. They want to avoid what's going on. So that's a natural response. But there's like a deeper level that, I mean, some have called chronic shame or unhealthy shame. And it's when it sits on you. I tried to look up a bunch of like articles and blogs and things about shame that psychologists have talked about because I wanted to kind of, the question I was asking the internet was what are symptoms of unhealthy shame, chronic shame? There's a lot. 
there's a lot. I found probably 20 different symptoms. They all, sound, they all sound like, wow, that makes a lot of sense. But there are two that really jump out to me that I want to point out to you today. I've already mentioned them this morning, and I think there are things that really fall into what the Samaritan woman is going through right now. Shame manifests itself, and there are symptoms of deeper shame that come out in these two things. The number one is this, isolation. We separate ourselves from people. We separate ourselves from the situations that we're ashamed of. We separate ourselves we separate. The second symptom of chronic or unhealthy shame is avoiding the truth. I don't have a drinking problem. I just, you know, I was tired. <laughs> you know, I didn't do, it wasn't that, what I did wasn't that bad. We tell ourselves whatever we need to hear in order to just kind of get through, just to make it. So isolation and avoiding the truth. Now, our psychology is complicated. I don't want to pretend like that's everything. But these are the two things I see in her story, and it consistently shows up in the studies that I was reading this week about shame. So I think this is important to bring to the surface because I want to see what happens. Because there's a question we need to ask ourselves. The question is, how does Jesus respond to separated, shamed sinners? How does Jesus respond? Because on some level, I think all of us have some of that in us. What do we do? How do we take this from paper to person? And how is God going to respond in this? And here's the answer that I came up with just from this story. How does Jesus respond? Jesus goes out of his way to meet us in our shame. He's not scared of it. Why do I say that? I, we, we went through it pretty quickly the first time, but I don't want you to miss it. If you look back at verse 4, it says this. Now he had to go through Samaria. Jesus had to go through Samaria. Let's talk about that. Because I don't know if you've seen a map of the area where Jesus worked. But the truth is, you don't have to go through Samaria to get where he was going. Not only that, uh, for like cultural and religious and social reasons, no Jew went through Samaria. They had this big ritual of like, if they accidentally got on Samaritan soil, they would like stomp the dirt off of their feet. They would walk around it. They would call them bad names while they walked by the area that they lived in. It was, there was a lot of racism. There was a lot of uh, historic national pride stuff going on there. It's a deep rabbit hole we could dive into. But the point is, like, this would be like an NC State fan saying, I had to wear a UNC shirt during the game. I just had to do it. No, no NC State fan would say that. They'd be like, uh, no, I had to burn that shirt in the front yard. I had to do that. Because, like, you just don't do that during the game or ever, right? If you've got that, like, rivalry. And so this is the Samaritans and the Jews. For Jesus to say, yeah, I, I got to stop through Samaria. I guarantee you, Peter, like, I don't put words in Peter's mouth, but you don't have to. He puts them in his mouth all the time. I feel like Peter was probably like, dude, for real? Why, what do you mean you got to go through Samaria? We don't have to go through Samaria. You, you don't know about the other road? Because that's, that's how we got here. We could, okay, we're, do, oh, we're doing this. Okay. Okay. And then he's like, I'm going to sit at this well. Okay, I'm going to go grab some lunch. Like, I don't want to be here. I can't sit still in this dirty place. Like, this is, I don't, Jesus had to go through Samaria. The truth is he didn't have to go through Samaria for any geographical reason. I believe that he knew there was a shamed Samaritan woman that was going to come to a well. And he was like, this is it. I don't know why I picture him sitting down like Mr. Rogers, but I, I just feel like he's just like, I'm going to wait. And then she walks up and he's like, oh, here she is right on time. Ding, ding. Um, can I have some water? He engages it. He, he breaks all social protocol. If the other guys were there, which is probably why he's like, hey, why don't y'all go grab a Happy Meal? Because uh, daddy's working. Because they would be like, here she comes, run. I think he went because he wanted to see her. 
How does Jesus deal with us in our sin? God, this is the thing that we got to know in our shame. He goes out of his way to be with us. If you don't know the story of Easter that we talked about last week, let me tell you the story of Jesus is that he went out of his way to be with us. He puts on human skin, he becomes a man, and he makes himself obedient even to death on the cross, even though he's God in the flesh. He had to go through Samaria. Um, and then he asked her for a drink. I love that Jesus just engages her, and he has this conversation. And it gets weird. Hey, listen, it's okay. Uh, I don't need a, a, the thing to draw water because I got living water. And so he goes into kind of this ethereal conversation, and it must have made her just be like, huh? What are you talking about, living water? And at first, I got to be honest, I think she might have thought, like, this is crazy. But then the conversation begins to go on, because when he mentions her husbands and the man that she's with now, immediately she's like, wait, who are you? How did you know that? So you know what she says in verse 19? She says, sir, I can see that you're a prophet. Like, she must have assumed, like, okay, you must know things. So since you're a prophet, she does what anybody does who's living in shame. She changes the subject. We're not going to read this right now, but if you keep on reading, I think through verse like about 24 or so, uh, she, she just starts talking about like all this religious stuff. So since you're a prophet, like I got a question for you. So she goes on, she talks about like, well, the Jews worship like this, the Samaritans worship like this, and what do you think about that? Like, and Jesus has this thing he says about worship. In fact, often when people teach through this passage, this is the passage they focus on. Like he says, true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. It's like a really cool sentence. Unpack that. That's good. That's good times. But that's not the point we're making today. So she like changes gears and she pulls it all around. And uh, they get to the point where she's like, okay, wow, this guy's smart. He's not just here to badger me and make fun of me. Like he's like actually answering some pretty deep questions. And she, she kind of, in the, in the spirit of still changing the subject, I want to get back to verse 25. She says, well, here's what I know. I know that the Messiah, the Christ is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Because they were talking about some deep things, about where people should worship and how it should go and all this stuff. She's like, you know, there's, there's going to be, I've heard our tradition, because the Samaritans and the Jews, their faith was actually very similar. I mean, they used the, the Old Testament stories and Abraham and all. I mean, they, that was their same lineage. And uh, they're like, well, you know, we, our scriptures talk about a Messiah coming, and so he'll explain it. And then Jesus just drops this bomb, okay? And Jesus declares, I who speak to you am he. She's like, I think there's going to be a Messiah. He's going to straighten it all out. She goes, oh yeah, there is going to be a Messiah. In fact, ding, 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 I'm right here. Now, I want to go and give us all a little bit of caution, okay? If you're ever in a coffee house, at the baseball field with your family, someone walks up and says, hey, I who speak to you am he. And people start claiming to be the Messiah. Uh, they probably have their own cult and a website, and you can get a t-shirt. I recommend that you proceed with caution. I don't know what it was about Jesus, I have to believe it was God's Holy Spirit prompting her, first of all, because that's the only way that we connect with God. I have to believe there was like maybe something in his eyes, the way he spoke, the compassion she used. Probably the very fact that like, wow, this guy is just, he is, he is kind of talking to me like he shouldn't be. and He's not treating me like trash. I don't know. But for whatever reason, she believes him. I who speak to you am he. I'm the Messiah. And she's like, well, I'll be dog. You... You sure are. Because what she does next is amazing. Verse 28. Then leaving her water jar, the woman ran back to town and said to the people, listen to this, because imagine you're the people who talk trash about her all the time. Come see the man who told me everything I ever did. And I'm thinking every dude in town was like, I'd kind of like to hear that story, actually. And so they perk up and she says, could this be the Messiah? 
whatever she said convinced them to come out. Says they came out of town, they made their way towards him. And this conversation ends pretty abruptly. I think a lot of times the scriptures that we have where Jesus is having conversations with people, like we just get the cliff's notes. Like I, I feel certain there was a lot more conversation because he's Jesus and man, I, I just feel like he would say more. But I can't say that that's what happened. But what I do know is that after this abrupt account of it, abrupt account of it, this lady hightailed it to her town. She tells everybody, I think the Messiah is at the well, and everybody's like, let's go out and see him. It says this in verse 39. It says, many of the Samaritans from the town believed in him because of this woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. It's a key detail, and it's kind of, it seems out of place, because like if someone came and told you about all of their divorces and stuff, like I don't know how that would convince me that Jesus was the Messiah, but, it's, but I think it actually plays into the shame thing. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. Did you see that? They believed him at first because, like, wow, this guy seems to know something about her. Like, it was just that knowledge that he had. But they became, they had faith in him because of the many words he shared later. He stayed two more days. I would love to have heard those lessons. What did he say? For a Jewish rabbi to come into a Samaritan village and convert them to become his disciples. That's wild. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said, but now we've heard it for ourselves. And we know that this man really is the savior of the world. So this woman meets the man who can take her sins away, heal her of her shame, and he wants everyone, she wants everyone to know about him. She brings him out. I want you to notice something here. Uh, her first priority was to tell people. I told you two symptoms of shame are isolation and avoiding the truth. Very common symptoms of shame. Isolation and avoiding the truth. And once she meets Jesus, something shifts in her. The first thing she does is she breaks her isolation. You notice that? Like, I'm thinking the lady who wants to be away from everybody is going to just be like, cool, thanks, good to meet you, sir. And take her little message about the Messiah back with her jug and go make lunch. But she immediately breaks her isolation. And the second thing she does is she breaks the lies she was telling about herself, or at least the, the truth she was hiding. My guess is normally when she walked into town with her jar, she'd be like, make my way to where I live. Now she runs to this the town square. <laughs> and what does she announce? I just met a guy who told me everything I ever did. And I'm not afraid to talk about it anymore. Yeah, I did some stuff. What? I did some stuff. But I just met the Messiah, and he told me that it's going to be okay. I think when it comes to symptoms, we got to understand something. There's a lot of symptoms in our life of, like, that things aren't going well. And often, when we have symptoms, like, life isn't perfect, I want to tell you something. Those things that are happening that are inconvenient or hard or hurtful, many times those things are actually just symptoms of a deeper problem. In this case, isolation and avoiding the truth. If you just treat symptoms, it doesn't help anything. I'm going to tell you something. I work on cars a lot, okay? If you ever get a check engine light in your car, you need to reach in your glove compartment. You need to pull out a Sharpie marker, and you need to color your dashboard until you can't see the light anymore, and the problem's fixed, right? No, that's stupid. No, because the light came on because something's broken deeper inside. But that's how we treat our problems all the time. Parents. If your kids are going crazy and they have no discipline and they don't respect you, that's annoying, isn't it? And they're really loud and I just want to read my book. 
That's just a personal thing I needed to get off my chest. But the fix for that is not just give them another screen and they'll be quiet for a while. We should get a bigger house. Yeah, then we can't hear them. Let's send them to grandma's house. Let her deal with it. You're just dealing with the symptoms. Well, grandma might deal with something deeper than the symptoms. But you're just dealing with the symptoms, the annoying, the loud, the bad behavior. You're just like, stop it. No, what they need is love and affection and boundaries and discipline and clear communication. Like, that's what they need. So you get it, right? If you have a fever, uh, you need to deal with the infection, whatever it is. And so when it comes to the symptoms of shame, I think it's important for us to understand the root of a lot of our shame, especially that chronic shame, often is spiritual. It's sin. And Jesus comes into this lady's life and he doesn't say, hey, listen, let me help you get happy. You know what you need to do? You need to join a club. You need to join a club, be with some people, you know. I've been married five times, anonymous, and go to that club and hang out with all the other people who have all the same problems as you do, and then that'll fix it. That'll fix it because you need community. You know what? You're kind of covering up the truth. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to start a journal. I want you to just, 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 just write out the truth over and over again. Like, that's, those are good things. I'm not downing them. But if deep down she's still living in sin, and we know this about her particular story. She's living with this person. It's not her husband. She obviously understands that that's not what God's best for her. <laughs> and so we've got to deal with things at the root. I have no doubt that Jesus spoke to her about her relationships, about her self-image about other spiritual things. They just had a conversation about worship in the verses we skipped. And what I know about Jesus is that his number one thing is he helps forgive us of our sin. He often, when he's teaching people in the gospel, says, okay, go now and sin no more. I forgive you. Doesn't say that in the scripture, but I mean, she, she must have heard something that compelled her to break through the symptoms and get to the root. If you treat the root, the symptoms will disappear. She says, come and hear the person that told me everything I've ever done. That one sentence shows me that her shame was at least temporarily removed. She wasn't scared to talk about it anymore. Okay, that's the story. Every week, I love to give us a challenge um, to take home. And this one was a little harder because it's going to be different for all of us. Okay, so here's the thing I want to throw in front of us. I want to encourage everybody to do this this week. The challenge is this. I want to challenge you to deal with a sin problem this week at the root by dragging it out into the light, out of the darkness and into the light. I want to put a mental image in your mind, okay? Sin in our lives is cockroaches, okay? You know, if you ever go into your garage or somewhere and you flipped on the light, maybe your kitchen, unfortunately, you know, they get in there, we're Wilmington, they, they got to live somewhere. And then what do they do when the light comes on? They scatter. That's a lot of times what we do with our sin. When we get in the presence of God or we come to church, we just kind of scatter our sin away. We, we tuck it away, we compartmentalize it, we hide it in closets, under rugs. We don't deal with it, we just let it go somewhere. I want to share with you a scripture. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11 through 13 says this. It says, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. Our, our gut reaction, and, and shame leads to this, it's Adam and Eve in the garden covering up and hiding from God. Our gut reaction when we know we've disobeyed God or dishonored him, our gut reaction is just to hide out, cover it up, pretend like it didn't ever happen. If you ever walked in on a kid doing something wrong and real quick, you're like, I didn't need cookies, cookies all over their face. We lie. We avoid the truth. We isolate. Whether it's chronically or just initially, if there's guilt there, the way to heal it is that we drag it out of darkness and expose it to the light. Verse 12, he says, it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. 
But everything exposed by the light becomes visible. And everything that's illuminated becomes light. God knows about your sin. It doesn't surprise him. (laughs) But for us to keep it in our cubby holes of our life doesn't deal with it. He encourages us actually to drag it into the light. The Gospel of John, what we just read, the Samaritan woman story, in the very first chapter, chapter, the Apostle John says that Jesus is the light of the world. So let's go back to the challenge, put it back up there. When we, when we, what I mean by this, deal with a sin problem at the root this week by dragging it out into the darkness and into the light, that's going to be personal to you. What does it mean to take something that you have shame for or that you're guilty for or that you're keeping from God or other people, what does it look like for you to drag it into the light? Maybe for you it starts by just writing it down, like admitting it to yourself. Maybe for you it means pulling a friend aside and saying, listen, I did something that I need to talk about. At the very least, what I want to encourage you to do, if, if Jesus is the light and we want to drag it into the light, start out by talking with him about it. Lord, I messed up and I just need to get this off my chest to you first. And then follow that trail to completion. Let, 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 the, let the light just burn out the darkness. Just several years into Lindsay and I's marriage, I had to face one of these moments myself. And as I talked about shame this week, I really wrestled with like, how, how do I want to wrap this thing up? And I think the easiest thing to do, the best, the, the most honest and transparent thing for me to do is to say, I know shame. I know shame. Starting as a teenager, I learned that there were all kinds of images that grabbed my attention. Uh, inappropriate, explicit images. Videos, pictures. It's actually a plague of our world, pornography. And as a kid, I was exposed to it, and it was like, oh, that's interesting, right? And, uh, but as I grew up, it kind of started to hide in the cubbies of my soul. I know that a lot of you know this story. I've shared it in various ways from here and other places, and I've sat across the table from a lot of you and heard your, your version of the same story. But there was a moment in my life I was like, i got to be done with this. And though I had accountability and I had, you know, software on my computer and had talked about it. and The one person I was keeping it from was the person that really probably needed the, mo- the most to be my support. And that was my wife. I hadn't had that conversation. So we sat down and we talked about it. I drove the shame into the light. And it was brutal hated it she hated it way worse but as I look back at that day years and years ago I look at it as a moment where I quit isolating and I quit avoiding the truth I, I got into about a year of counseling got into some serious accountability took some major steps had the grace of a wonderful woman who was willing to walk me walk with me through it so much good friendship so much good church leadership when talk to our church leaders about it, like this is, I gotta get done with this. What does it mean everything exposed by the light becomes visible and everything that is illuminated becomes light? Can I just share this? That, though that really was hard and I, and I drug it into the light, I can tell you a couple things. I can tell you I believe that God has freed me from that. He's put me in a place where like I, I, can, I can move through life without constantly having the, the, the chains of an addiction around my neck. 
And also he's used that. I can't tell you how many one-on-one conversations I've had with people where I was able to bring my mess into the light in front of them. Say, look, this is my past, this is what I've dealt with. And that other person was like, I'm so glad you shared that. (laughs) And it helped them to get onto a healing journey themselves. Because when we drag stuff out of the darkness into the light, anything that is illuminated becomes light. Even our sin, God can use to his glory. Even our brokenness, even our shame, our despicable nature, if we will drag it before him into the light, he can say, finally, I can work with that. I can work with honesty. I can work with transparency. I can work with accountability. And I got limitless light for your darkness. I don't know what it is that you need to drag into the light this week. But I'm going to tell you, if you continue to let your shame keep you from bringing it to the forefront and laying it before your God and before the people that you love, it will hold you hostage. But when you take paper to person and you see that God's got a plan for that, what does Jesus do for separated, sinful, shamed people? He goes out of his way to meet them. And he's waiting for you right now. He's ready for this. Let's pray.